0: From National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Air pollution from cargo ships is a major problem in busy harbors across the nation. Port of Los Angeles, these vessels can foul the air as much as a million cars on the freeways. You can't
1: ignore the uh, pollution coming out of the smokestack of the big ships. You know, All you have to do is look at them sometimes in the harbor, and it's just thick, black exhaust pouring out of these things sometimes.
0: And it's amazing that people don't stop and notice. Now there's a growing call to regulate these ships, but the matter is complicated by international law. Also, a pair of whooping cranes recently moved in next door to a Florida man and started raising baby chicks. He's got a name for the one chick that survived the predator so far.
2: Lucky. He was lucky he wasn't sitting on the nest the morning the bald eagle came by.
0: (laughs) Raising cranes this week on Living on Earth, coming up right after this. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the busy harbor of Los Angeles, cargo ships can generate as much air pollution as a million cars on the freeway. It's a problem most port cities face as the dirty air hangs over neighborhoods from Boston to Biloxi. So, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is considering rules to clean up some of the marine smokestacks. The impetus for the move comes from a lawsuit filed by citizens in San Francisco. But the U.S. can only regulate ships flying the Stars and Stripes, and most freighters in U.S. ports are registered elsewhere. From Los Angeles, Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has our story.
3: Russell Long leans against a dockyard fence. His father was a ship broker, but he may be more of a ship breaker. He's director of the Blue Water Network, the group that sued the EPA over ship emissions. You can't
1: ignore the uh, pollution coming out of the smokestack of the big ships. You know, all you have to do is look at them sometimes in the harbor, and it's just thick, black exhaust pouring out of these things sometimes. And it's amazing that people don't stop and notice.
3: Cargo ships burn the lowest quality fuel refineries produce. It's molasses-thick bunker fuel and contains 50 times more air-polluting sulfur than diesel fuel. Between the sulfur content and the size of a ship's engine, it's easy to see how a single voyage pours out pollution measured in tons.
1: You multiply that out and you have something like 280 pounds of pollutants that are being emitted on an hourly basis.
3: And it takes tens of thousands of ships to deliver the world's rice, refrigerators, and Rolls Royces.
4: One of the major threats to our air quality over the next 10 or 15 years is pollution from marine shipping offshore.
3: Douglas Allard is air pollution control chief for the county of Santa Barbara, which has had a serious ozone problem.
4: In fact, we found that in 1999... About one-third of our oxides of nitrogen emissions, which is one of the pollutants that forms ozone, came from those ships, which means that there's as much NOx coming from those ships as all of our onshore motor vehicle emissions combined.
3: Allard says in 15 years, two-thirds of that pollution will be coming from ships. Regions are unequally affected depending on how the wind blows emissions from busy harbors and shipping lanes. Houston, Louisiana, the Great Lakes, and the West Coast are all in the path of the pollution. Dr. James Corbett of the University of Delaware has done much of the research. He also looked at ship emissions globally.
5: At the international level,
6: NOx emissions, nitrogen emissions from ship engines can contribute 14% of the total global NOx inventory from human activity, from combustion
5: systems.
3: Yet few U.S. officials believe it's within their purview to force changes on ships registered in countries such as Liberia or Greece. The EPA would not comment for this story, but is expected to propose reducing the emissions only of U.S. vessels. The International Maritime Organization has jurisdiction, but hasn't yet moved on the issue. That's left the problem to the industry and to local officials like Dr. Robert Cantor of the Port of Long Beach, and he'll tell you there's only so much he can do.
1: These are our tenants. We can't tell them how to do their business. We're trying to advise them what's in their best interest and everybody's best health.
3: But with trade doubling in the near term and the prospect of a thickening marine haze, shippers, air pollution officials, and the ports in Los Angeles got together and hashed out a voluntary plan. As ships cross the 20-mile line, they're asked to slow down to 12 knots, burning less fuel, making less smoke.
1: Now passing, Whiskey Boy, and proceeding. Present
7: course 270. Over.
8: Roger. And... are you aware of the voluntary air quality compliance zone?
7: Roger, Roger. I'm aware the, the speed, not more than 12 knots.
2: That is correct, Captain. What is your ETA?
3: A year later, most captains like this one do know about the voluntary rule, but to Robert Cantor's frustration, only 50 to 60 percent of ships are slowing down.
1: If we can get 90 to 95 percent compliance with that, that will be a huge Uh, Improvement in air quality here. Huge. Uh, uh, Figures 30 to 40 percent of emissions from the vessels can be reduced.
3: Not all the air pollution at ports comes from ships. Heavy duty diesel trucks put out half the vehicle pollution in California, even though they make up only three percent of what's on the road. Now imagine this. There are 33,000 heavy-duty truck trips in and out of the ports of L.A. and Long Beach every day. Officials say that number will triple in the next two decades. But they say this is one thing they can do something about. State inspectors flag down big rigs near the ports.
6: When well, you see my thumbs up, You pushed down your throttle and again, all the way to the floor real quick, night swing. way. Okay? You ready? Go! Yes, very good, very good. Wait a second.
3: More than 90% of the trucks who take these tests pass them nowadays, but not all of them are inspected.
7: All right, sir, you already got it. Have a nice day.
3: Many port and shipping-related engines have gotten cleaner. Long-time port workers say they've seen the improvement. They get less soot on their cars now. But people who live in housing projects near the ports say something else. Expansion is bringing more ships and more trucks. And, say Carol Piseno and Maria Juventino Quintero, more illness. In the morning, like, we smell, like,
9: eggs suffer. Well, I got asthma this last year. I don't know if it's due to that, because I never had asthma before. My son has asthma. If he gets real bad, then he has to be on a machine. My son, he tells me, Mom, do I have to live like this? I says, I don't know, son. You know, what answer can I give him? People
3: interviewed for this story agreed on one thing. More can be done to clean up shipping. The Blue Water Network's Russell Long says for one thing, the EPA could require cleaner fuels, as will soon be the case for diesel trucks.
1: They could make them convert to a clean fuel right away if they wanted to.
3: Long expects EPA's proposals to fall short, and he says he'll sue the agency again. Other people believe cleaner engines will come through incentives. Norway charges lower port fees to cleaner container ships. And new technology may make marine engines burn cleaner when their fuel is mixed with water. For now, a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of the world's newest goods pass through here, propelled by yesterday's engines. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
0: As part of its America Undercover series, HBO is presenting a documentary about vinyl on Sunday, May 5th. HBO calls it a toxic comedy picture that traces one woman's quest to find out just exactly what's in the blue vinyl siding that her parents installed on their Long Island home. Bruce Barcott reviews Blue
5: Vinyl. The story of Blue Vinyl begins when Judith Helfand's parents decide to refurbish their Long Island house with, yes, blue vinyl siding. Helfand, a Peabody Award-winning filmmaker, turns on her camera and wonders, what exactly is vinyl, anyway? What follows is an investigative odyssey that takes Helfand from New York to Louisiana, California, and all the way to Venice, Italy, before yielding an answer. Vinyl, she says, turns out to be one of the most environmentally hazardous consumer products on Earth.
10: Later, I asked my dad, if someone had told you that over the
6: course of its life cycle, from the factory to the incinerator... Vinyl could produce a wide array of deadly pollutants that threaten our future with a global toxic crisis. Would you still
10: have put it on the house?
6: I hope not, honey, he said. But they didn't write that on the box.
5: Vinyl is technically known as PVC or polyvinyl chloride. The main ingredient in PVC is vinyl chloride, a gas that the chemical industry has known to be extremely toxic since the early 1970s. Helfand's quest takes her to the town of Lake Charles, Louisiana, which produces one-third of America's PVC. There she meets the widows of chemical workers killed by rare cancers that they believe were caused by exposure to vinyl chloride. She also meets a small-town lawyer preparing a massive class-action lawsuit against 32 PVC makers. His case has never gone to court and is unlikely to do so because the industry hushes up every claim with large settlement offers. If you love Michael Moore, you'll like Judy Helfand, who knows how to give her targets just enough rope. At one point, a vinyl industry spokesperson tries to convince Helfand that PVC is no more dangerous than salt. Because they both contain the compound chloride, you know. Helfand isn't interested in merely exposing the wrongs of the chemical industry. She wants her parents to replace that vinyl siding with something more eco-friendly. She travels to Northern California to find an array of alternatives. Hemp, clay straw bales, and something called rammed earth, all of which are a little too woo-woo for her Long Island parents. Finally, Helfen finds her sighting, genuine pine planks taken from the roof of an old New Hampshire mill. The only drawback? It costs a fortune. Blue vinyl defies easy labeling. It falls somewhere between a frontline expose and a personal docu-comedy like Michael Moore's Roger and Me or Ross McElway's Sherman's March. Perhaps more importantly, It's one more step in environmentalism's evolution from a political movement to a consumer movement. Judy Helfand isn't an objective journalist. She's just a consumer who picked up a product and started asking questions. Where does it come from? How's it made? Will it kill me? Will it kill the neighbors? These are questions more and more of us are asking. Helfand just does it on camera and with enough humor and startling information to make blue vinyl worth watching.
0: Reviewer Bruce Barcott writes about environmental issues for Outside Magazine. Coming up, the heavy footprint of prospecting for black gold in the Rockies. First, this page from the Animal Notebook with Maggie Villiger.
9: When Belding's ground squirrels touch noses upon meeting, it's more than just a friendly hello. New research suggests they're checking each other out to see who's worth protecting. These small mammals live in open meadows, making them easy targets for predators. Raising an alarm or helping fight off an intruder puts a squirrel at greater risk of death than if she just looked out for number one. But from time to time, scientists observe the squirrels acting in these altruistic ways. Nepotism likely explains a squirrel's decision whether to act. According to evolution, it makes sense to stick your neck out at personal risk if you're protecting close relatives. Even if you die, most of your genes will be passed on by those relatives. But in a bustling field filled with other squirrels, how can you be sure who's close enough to warrant the risk? To find out, researchers presented squirrels with facial gland secretions. The more distant the relative, the longer a squirrel investigated the odor. Since a squirrel can distinguish between mother, grandmother, and cousin, sniffing for these scents explains how she can identify whose genes are close enough to want to protect. In the world of Belding's ground squirrels, those welcome kisses are really a way to figure out if it's worth risking your life for this seeming stranger. It gives a whole new meaning to kissing cousins. That's this week's Animal Note. I'm Maggie Villiger.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you have a hankering for frog legs, I suggest you head to northeastern France. The landscape there is green and wet. It's the perfect home for frogs, and each year for the past 30 years, the little town of Vittel holds a festival to celebrate the fine art of frog feasting. British author Peter Mayle made a trip to Vittel and found that it all started when the pond of a local chef by the name of René Clément became overpopulated with frogs one spring. So, Chef Clément set up a table in front of his restaurant, cooked up all these frog legs, and fed them to the town. And so, a tradition was born. On the last weekend in April, the normally sleepy vacation town goes frog wild. Frogs appear in fashion and fitness ads, sporting swimsuits and lifting weights. They're sculpted out of chocolate and handed out as fuzzy toys. And, of course, frogs are hopping on every menu in town. About 30,000 people spend the weekend munching away. By the end of the festival, about five tons of frogs have been consumed. Most are served the traditional way, sautéed in garlic and oil, but... One popular recipe calls for amphibian thighs poached in Riesling wine and garnished with escargot. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. (laughs) ¶¶ After months of wrangling, the Senate finally approved their version of the first comprehensive energy bill in 10 years. And with me now to discuss legislation is Chris Holley. Chris is a reporter with the Energy Daily covering energy issues on Capitol Hill. The uh, debate over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, drew a lot of attention recently. But there's a lot more here that, that concerns the environment. I'm thinking in particular of the Corporate Average Fleet Efficiency Standards, or CAFE, that deals with mileage in cars. How have those changed since the original Senate bill?
8: Well, the auto industry waged a really aggressive and in some ways misleading advertising campaign on CAFE to persuade senators to vote against it. And they touted economic impacts on the industry and impacts on individual drivers by claiming that the proposed legislation, which would boost the fuel economy standard fleet-wide from about 25 miles per gallon to 36 miles per gallon by 2015 would force drivers to get out of their comfortable SUVs and minivans and into tiny, compact cars. It lost rather badly, almost by a two to one margin. So it looks very doubtful that we'll have a strong CAFE provision when a House Senate conference committee concludes its work on the bill later this year. Chris, tell me about what happened to renewable energy in the Senate package. Well, there are two key provisions in the bill. One is a tax provision that extends an existing program that gives generators of renewable energy a 1.7 cent per kilowatt hour tax credit. And this has been a very useful instrument in helping the fledgling wind industry grab a foothold in the U.S. power market. And the bill extends that by another two years. The other thing is a system called a renewable portfolio standard. And what that means is that by 2020, all retail electricity providers would have to offer at least 10% of their product, the power that they sell, from renewable resources. There were four attempts to weaken this bill on the Senate floor. Three failed. The fourth, which happened in the middle of the week, was successful. And what that did was cut in half the maximum price of the credits that the federal government would sell to energy providers who needed them. Republicans said that this would cut the cost of this provision, and it does, by 50%. Environmentalists worry, however, that this will have the perverse impact of making only wind, which is the most cost-effective and the closest competitor to traditional technologies such as coal and oil, and strand other technologies like solar, geothermal, and biomass, it remains to be seen what will happen. The measure could be uh, amended further in conference. So we have a bill now from the Senate. Of course, it's different from what the House had passed. Uh, Quickly, what are those differences in summary? Well, the House bill includes a provision to open up the ANWR. The Senate bill does not. That's going to be a major sticking point for the conferees. The other main difference is the tax package. The Senate has uh, $14 billion in various incentives and subsidies to fossil fuel producers and renewable energy producers as well. And $14 seems like a lot, but it's nothing compared to the, what the House did. They approved $33 billion in subsidies. That has to be uh, brought together, so the typical strategy is to split the difference. So we may see about $20, 25000000000 in subsidies coming out of the House Conference Committee.
0: With so much uh, riding here politically on this conference, especially
8: around uh, Anwar, uh, what do you think could happen? The thing to remember, Steve, that I think is important is that both the President and the Congress said that their efforts are aimed at improving America's independence from foreign energy sources. And I'm sad to say that it's not likely that the bill that emerges from the conference is going to do much about America's energy independence.
0: Chris Holley is a reporter with the Energy Daily. Thanks for speaking with us today, Chris. Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it. As Congress continues the debate on how to meet the nation's future energy needs, the Bush administration is already advancing dozens of oil and gas projects across the Rocky Mountain West. Federal agencies have reduced red tape to allow new drilling on public lands. For example, in Wyoming, the Bureau of Land Management may allow up to 51,000 new gas wells. Opponents of drilling say the most sensitive landscapes of the West are at risk. From Radio High Country News, Adam Burke reports.
6: On Cannonball Mesa in southwestern Colorado, activist Mark Pearson steps through remnants of a human settlement that's centuries old. You can see it broken and scattered all over the ground here. I mean, you can't take a step without stepping on it. And a fragment of pottery we're in canyons of the ancients National Monument created two years ago to preserve one of the highest concentrations of archaeological ruins in North America among the patches of sagebrush and Mormon tea, we find not only pottery shards but the remains of a ceremonial structure known as a Kiva. 30 yards away, blaze-orange tape stretches through the stunted brush, dividing the mesa in straight lines. It marks the places where 40,000-pound vehicles, known by some as thumper trucks, might soon be crawling across this mesa top in search of oil and gas. And that has Pearson worried. This mesa is probably one of the more pristine corners of Canyons of the Ancients National Monument. And running monster... Uh, seismic thumper trucks up here or any other kind of motor vehicles associated with oil and gas exploration will leave an indelible mark of mechanical human civilization in a place that doesn't seem to have seen any of that for eons. Recently, these seismic trucks, which generate sound waves, became the focal point of controversy when an energy contractor began work in Utah's Dome Plateau. The area has been open to oil leasing for over a decade, but it's just a few miles from Arches National Park and has stretches of scenic wilderness that many say deserve special protection. As they rolled over the soft red earth on Dome Plateau, Crushing brush, grasses, and the occasional tree with their huge balloon tires, thumper trucks made headlines in Western and then national newspapers. But the issue reached a critical pitch when the conservation group Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, or SUA, abruptly succeeded in shutting down the dome plateau project with work still in progress. That's the sound of energy contractor Western G. equipment being ferried out by helicopter. The company began losing $45,000 a day. In court documents, the Wilderness Alliance had contended that the trucks would destroy living soil crusts that prevent erosion in the desert. Liz Thomas is a staff attorney for the organization.
3: The soils up there are very fragile, and the only available research there is indicate that it takes anywhere from 50 to 300 years for these soils to come back.
6: Thomas says she documented numerous instances where BLM failed to enforce protections it had agreed to in its permit. Off-road, the trucks were supposed to travel single file and stay inside a 100-foot corridor. When soils were wet, the trucks were supposed to stop work if they left ruts in excess of four inches deep.
3: The BLM had the Western Geco crew out raking and covering up ruts for a distance of at least three-quarters of a mile. These ruts were not just in excess of 4 inches, but they were in excess of 15 inches deep. Um, and these ruts are about 3 feet plus wide. Sure, the BLM can go out and rake them, and maybe visually you can't see it, but those soils don't heal.
6: The shutdown caught energy companies by surprise. For the industry, seismic trucks represent the cutting edge of environmental protection and exactly what's needed in a fragile desert landscape.
8: It lets you know more about the subsurface before you actually go to the point of drilling a hole in the ground to see what's down there.
6: Stuart Wright, a geophysicist for Western Geco, says the term thumper truck is a misnomer because the trucks don't thump. They use low-frequency sound waves. The result is a three-dimensional picture that allows oil companies to drill with precision. That means fewer roads and fewer wells. And, says Wright, the trucks themselves are designed to leave a minimal trace.
8: Most companies have equipped them with very large tires that spread out the weight so that in terms of actual pounds per square inch, there's no more than, say, an average vehicle. And it's our contention that any impact is minimal and ephemeral. It, it tends to heal itself rather quickly. But if you don't want to take our word for it, you can go out there and judge for yourself.
6: Back at Canyons of the Ancients, there's an opportunity to do just that directly south of the area now proposed for exploration. The BLM's Randy Lewis shows me where seismic trucks rolled seven years ago.
8: Right here in front of you, you can see the tread from the tires. It's Just like a tractor tire, the cleats are at an angle.
6: The herringbone pattern of giant tread marks is barely visible on the clay soils. We follow these traces for a quarter mile over hard hardscrabble desert and bunch grasses. There are only a few 10-foot stretches where the trucks have left a lasting impact, and Randy says this is the only area he can find where there's any trace at all.
8: After this program was over, you looked at the tracks and said, oh my gosh, it's going to be here for forever, but two, three years, it's gone, and then, you know, 10 years later, you'll never see
6: any of it. Seismic trucks are just the most visible aspect of a larger battle being waged over oil and gas development in the West. Last May, Vice President Cheney's task force directed agencies to increase production on public lands. A BLM memo in Utah instructs field offices to treat drilling as their, quote, number one priority. The agency is shortening public debate and eliminating what it calls impediments, such as seasonal wildlife restrictions. People like Claire Mosley of the industry group Public Land Advocacy say it's about time companies can drill on land they've leased for years.
9: We're not getting a free ride here. We bend over backwards.
6: But conservationists say the efforts to streamline cuts the public out of the process and puts the environment at risk. Jim Baca was chief of the BLM in the first Clinton administration.
1: The BLM simply does not have the manpower to properly go out and do environmental assessments and studies on on the effects of this drilling. They have about the same amount of people today as they had 10 years ago. Their budgets have been continually cut, and so um, they don't really have the infrastructure in place to even make the decisions.
6: The shutdown at Dome Plateau in no way slowed the energy rush the West is witnessing, but it has reminded the BLM that the public is watching. Kent Hoffman, an associate field office manager in Durango, Colorado, says that if the proposed project at Canyons of the Ancients goes forward, his staff will be strict with any permit violations.
5: Well, initially they'll, they'll be shut down, and that's economically unfavorable to them, certainly. And uh, secondarily, they'll be expected to bring it back to a condition that's sustainable.
6: Still, standing on the top of Cannonball Mesa in Canyons of the Ancients, Mark Pearson says these assurances are cold comfort. Once this gets going, BLM will not have the backbone to actually force compliance with what's written up, at least if the experience in Utah is any guide. Pearson says his alliance will be checking, wherever it can, to see that energy companies follow their permits to the letter. For Living on Earth, I'm Adam Burke in southwestern Colorado. (laughs) ¶¶
0: You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Think for a moment how you might feel looking out your window and seeing a pair of four-foot-tall endangered whooping cranes building a nest 50 yards away. That's what happened to Gene Tendall at his home in Leesburg, Florida. And now the cranes are raising a chick, only the second successful hatching in the wild by captive-bred parents. Mr. Tendall, please tell us about the place these birds have chosen to call home. What's it look like?
2: See, it's a small about a 30-acre lake out here, Uh and we had a draft, and it's just turned into from a lake to a marsh.
0: Why do you think they picked your house, these whooping cranes?
2: Well, the Game and Fish Commission really didn't approve of this, but uh, we have mallard ducks back here, and I would feed them cracked corn every day. And I guess when the whooping cranes came over, they saw the cracked corn. The Game and Fish Commission said it was just like being on the interstate and seeing a McDonald's sign out when you're starving to death. They've been here ever since.
0: They had a baby, huh?
2: They had two. The first one was hatched overnight on the uh, March the 12th. Uh-huh. The second one was hatched overnight on March the 14th. But on the 15th, about 8.30 in the morning, a bald eagle picked chick number two off the nest.
0: Oh, how did that feel to see that?
2: Oh, it broke my heart
0: <laughs> now i'm wondering if you feel like an honorary grandfather
2: to the <laughs> <laughs> i feel like <laughs>
0: you handing out cigars
2: uh no but uh the Game and fish commission brought me two and uh they're not sure whether this one is a male or female so they brought me it's a boy it's a girl <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what do you do if you're a, a human grandfather to a whooping crane <laughs> chick uh, how are you supposed to act
2: i, I don't know <laughs> Mostly observe, and people come by and want to see them. I let them come in the yard and give them a better view of the chick.
0: Now, what about the predator situation there?
2: Well, if I see the bald eagle flying around overhead, I walk down to the edge of the marsh and uh, stand there until he leaves. But I try to protect him as much as I can.
0: Is there a name, by the way, for this baby?
2: Yes, uh Lucky. He was lucky he wasn't sitting on the nest the morning the bald eagle came by. <laughs> My wife gave him that name.
0: <laughs> What's it going to be like to see a Lucky uh, fly away one
2: day? It's going to be heartbreaking, but hopefully we'll get to see him again. If the uh, marsh stays as it is now, that there's a good chance that this same pair will come back here this next year and nest again. So hopefully we'll see him again.
0: Gene Tendall watches the Whoopers from his home in Leesburg, Florida. Thanks for the bird's eye view, Gene. Thank you. Just ahead, President Bush celebrates Earth Day. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey.
11: A federally funded study has found striking gender differences in the type of job someone holds down and the corresponding incidence of heart disease and death. Beginning in the mid-80s, almost 3,700 people filled out surveys in which they were asked about such things as education level, marital status, employment, job stress, and income. Then they were followed for a decade. After researchers took into account factors including cholesterol levels, smoking, and even degree of household responsibilities, they made some surprising findings. If a woman worked in any kind of demanding job, but also had a great deal of decision-making authority, that woman had almost three times the risk of developing heart disease. But the same situation in men did not correlate with such an increase. The riskiest job for a man? Being a so-called house husband. Men who consider themselves house husbands most of their adult lives had an 82% higher death rate over the 10-year study period compared to men who worked outside the home. But no such increase was seen in housewives. Researchers say they're not sure about the reason behind the gender differences, but suggest people who perform jobs that don't conform to social norms may suffer additional stress that leads to heart disease. That's this week's health update. I'm Diane Toomey.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth. Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, seeing our world through sound. But first, the influential body that reviews the science of global warming has a new chairman. On April 19th, the member nations of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, voted out longtime chair, American Robert Watson, and voted in vice chair Rajendra Pachauri, an engineer from India. Environmental activists say the Bush administration was responsible for Mr. Watson's ouster, and the switch could impede global efforts to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Ross Gelbspan, author of The Heat is On, The Climate Crisis, The Cover-Up, The Prescription, says the Watson story is another example of the White House breaking ranks with Europe
4: over climate policy. Dr. Watson was supported by virtually all of the European countries who are very concerned about climate change and very much in the forefront of making changes in their own energy diet, and the the Bush administration decided not to back Watson for a second term as chair of the IPCC, I think because the Bush administration's agenda has been very, very uh, aggressive against action on the climate front. Now, some critics of this move are pointing to a
0: memo that ExxonMobil forwarded to the White House last year. Tell us the story about this, please.
4: ExxonMobil sent a memo to the White House Basically saying, "Please get rid of Watson," and they suggested that the White House replace him with one of two known greenhouse skeptics. These are people who don 't think climate change should be taken very seriously it 's pretty clear that if the White House had done that, they would have really uh, brought down the wrath of most of the community of nations around their head. So they did something that 's a little bit more subtle. instead, they supported the nomination of Dr. Pachauri, who is not a scientist. And in so doing, they managed to take off the scientific edge and at the same time curry some diplomatic favor with the developing nations by saying, oh, it's time for us to hand over leadership to developing countries. I think it was a very clever maneuver.
0: A press release from the IPCC I have here describes uh, Mr. Pachari as, quote, a world-class expert in economics and technology, two areas critical to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
4: So who is this new chairman? Dr. Pachauri is head of the Tata Institute, which is an energy policy institute in India. It's partially funded by uh, an Indian oil interest, and he happens to actually have a seat on the board of directors of the Indian government's oil company. But Dr. Pachauri is very aggressive about the need to reduce emissions and to eventually change our energy diet, which is what the climate requires us to do. What is it that the Bush White House gets out of having him in office as opposed to Dr. Watson? I think what the Bush White House gets is not an immediate ally. I think you need to look beyond the personality of Dr. Pachauri or his individual self and look in a larger sense at what the administration, along with ExxonMobil, is doing to the larger scientific process here. And I think they could very well be crippling it.
0: That's pretty strong language that this is designed somehow to cripple this international scientific consensus. What difference does it make having a scientist or a non-scientist as the head of this panel?
4: I think it is critical that you have a scientific process that is totally transparent, that is beyond reproach, that is rigorously peer-reviewed in order for it to have the credibility for governments to begin to base their policies on its findings. And what's very important about the chairman is that as the IPCC deliberates, it's very often subject to pressure from various governments. And what Dr. Watson did in a sterling way was when he was asked to make changes, he would turn to the governments and cite pieces of science and say, the science doesn't justify the changes you want me to make. Uh, Mr. Pachauri is not nearly as conversant with the science. And so, therefore, I think he's going to have a much harder time facing these challenges.
0: The next uh, IPCC report, these happen every five years. They did one last year, uh, actually for this year so. It'll be, what, 2007 that it comes out. What do you think will happen with IPCC science over these next five years uh, with uh, Dr. Pachari at the helm?
4: That is a very good question. The uh, third assessment report that really came out informally in 2001 was very strong. How it departed from the previous report was it dramatically upped the estimate of future warming, Uh, which earlier had been forecast at 2 to 4 degrees by the end of this current century and was raised in the third assessment report from 3 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really off the charts. The Latest IPCC report also said that the climate is changing much more quickly than the scientists had anticipated even a few years ago. So there's a very strong note of alarm in the latest IPCC report, and it's anyone's guess as to what the IPCC report five years down the road will contain.
0: Ross Gelbspan is the author of The Heat Is On.
4: Thanks so much for taking this time with us, Ross. Thank you so
0: much, Steve. It was supposed to be a perfect photo op. President Bush chose New York's Adirondack Mountains as the setting for his Earth Day speech. But nature wasn't cooperating. The springtime weather slid back toward winter with snow and temperatures in the 20s. So instead of picturesque mountains as his backdrop, the president spoke to a crowd in a cafeteria at the Whiteface Mountain Lodge. Mr. Bush made the best of it and took the opportunity to tout his environmental agenda. We have an excerpt beginning with the president's pitch for his Clear Skies initiative. He says it could cut acid rain by reducing power plant emissions.
12: We will reach our ambitious air quality goals through a market-based approach that rewards innovation, reduces cost, and most importantly, guarantees results. Mine is a results-oriented administration. When we say we expect results, we mean it. We will set mandatory limits on air pollution with firm deadlines, while giving companies the flexibility to find the best ways to meet the mandatory limits. Clear Skies legislation, when passed by Congress, will significantly reduce smog and mercury emissions, as well as stop acid rain. It will put more money directly into programs to reduce pollution, so as to meet firm national air quality goals. And put less money into the pockets of lawyers and regulators. My administration will foster technologies that I absolutely convinced will change America for the better. We will promote innovative ways to encourage conservation. I believe we'll be driving automobiles driven by fuel cells in a relatively short period of time and promoting that technology. I know we need to promote renewable sources of energy to become less dependent on foreign sources of energy. We also must encourage natural resource restoration, and one good place to start is in the Farm Bill right now, that's right now before Congress. Good stewardship is the daily work of America's farmers and those who own the land. I like to tell people Laura and I are proud to be Texas own a Texas ranch, and for us, every day is Earth Day. If you own your own land, every day is Earth Day. If you have to make a living off your land, it's important to make your land as productive as is possible. Every day is Earth Day. And so, therefore, I support, strongly support, a strong farm conservation effort in the Farm Bill before the Congress. With more funding and incentives for conservation, we can help our farmers preserve wetlands and wildlife habitat and to better protect water quality. Americans have reached a great consensus about the protection on the environment. We've come to understand the success of a generation is not defined by wealth alone. We want to be remembered for our material progress, no question about it, but we also want to be remembered for the respect we give to our natural world. This Earth Day finds us on the right path, gaining an appreciation for the world and our care. Each of you here today is doing your part to advance that work and to spread this spirit. And on behalf of our country, I want to thank you. May God bless you all.
0: President George W. Bush speaking on Earth Day at the White Mountain Lodge in New York's Adirondack State Park. Whether you're a native or a visitor, getting around a major city can often be a hassle. But for the visually impaired, getting around town can be an obstacle course. Producer D. May Roberts wanted to navigate the streets of Portland, Oregon with her eyes closed. She got this lesson in sight from 19-year-old Andrew Meyer.
10: I've worn glasses since I was 10 years old. Each year I have to get a stronger prescription. As others who are nearsighted probably do, I wonder what it would be like to someday lose my sight. Sometimes I close my eyes and try walking through my house. I wonder how it would be to walk around the neighborhood, to get to the grocery store, to do what I consider simple things.
7: We can hear the difference when we walk through a door. When there's a hallway off to your left, when it's just a closed wall. The sound changes.
10: I met Andrew Meyer when he was in Portland for a summer program by the Oregon Commission for the Blind. Andrew has been blind since birth. He was abandoned in an alleyway in the Philippines when he was a baby and was adopted by an American couple with four children.
7: I've always been someone to use sights as as sort of a generic term. Ever since I was little, my foster family tells the story of when I was sitting in the living room, or after dinner, I go, let's go watch TV. And they'd all look at me like, "You're going to go watch TV. <laughs> you know, you can't see. And I, ever since I was little, I always felt that that was correct, to use those terms.
10: Early on, Andrew learned that he too could see, just not with his eyes. He learned to not only walk with a cane, but to run in track meets. I ask Andrew to explain how he finds his way around. He immediately starts physically mapping out the patio at the dormitory where we're standing.
7: What I do is basically find one place that I know exactly where I am, and I know exactly where I am right here. If worst comes to worse, I come back here, to the door. Okay, that's where I'm gonna go to, and we we trail one wall. We just go around the room. So we're just gonna I'm just gonna walk around the patio really quickly, turning left. See, there's a chair there. You know, a little bit farther, there's a drop off. Okay, so that's the edge of the patio. So we I learned how wide this patio is, but. How long is it? So I'm just going to turn right and walk the length of the patio. And I find a few things, like a pole, and and we reach the end of the patio.
10: Sound and touch are important to help him see as Andrew moves through his environment.
7: We always pay attention to what's underneath our feet. So, for example, right now we're on cement. Now I'm on grass. Room carpet versus, say, like, indoor-outdoor carpeting that's not very thick carpeting. Or brick. Go from concrete to brick. So we learn how to pick that up.
10: How about trees? How do you deal with them?
7: You can tell when you come up to them. (laughs) Or if they happen to hit you in the face, you learn later you might want to duck when you get to that point.
10: (laughs) I look around and see the trees with branches close enough to hit my face. It would be hard to get around even a backyard, let alone a forest or woods. But Andrew tells me that it doesn't matter if it's a forest path or a city street. Any terrain that isn't predictable is difficult.
7: If you land me in a, a field of grass and tell me, find the nearest sidewalk, (laughs) good luck. If there's a lot of one thing around us, it's really hard. And if nothing is straight lines. Blind people like straight lines. They're very predictable.
10: City streets have a lot of straight lines, but there's a lot of traffic to avoid. Cars, trucks, bikes, even skateboards. I want to hear how a trip to the store would sound to someone without sight. So I give Andrew a mini disc and a mic, and he records his trip to the grocery store with two teen friends, Tian and Sumner, who are also blind.
7: Okay, we're on. Okay, Tian. Yes, I'm okay. right here. We're walking to Safeway, and that rattling in the background which is Tian's little cart so she can carry all of her food that we all buy um, in the cart so we don't have to carry it by hand because it's really annoying to walk from Safeway carrying it by hand. And Sumner's to my right. Say hi, Sumner. Hello. Yeah, see, that's Sumner. We've got our traffic to our right. As a blind person, we'd sometimes key off the traffic. Not right now, because we're walking the sidewalk. So the traffic's off to our right. So at the moment, I'm not keying off of it. I don't really care it's there until we get to a street. And then I will care if it's there, because that's how we'll know when to go. Of course, we have really easy crossings here. And we're going to go ahead and cross the street that was off to, well, no, I guess not. Yes, we are. We're going to cross the street that was right off to our right. Just what stuck,
3: and people, are stopping. and
7: people are stopping, and so we're going. Okay. And now we're on the other side of the street, so the sounds coming from the other side of the mic. People on bikes and skateboards. Yeah, there were a bunch of people just driving, riding past us. I barely noticed, and I just hit a branch. <laughs> Sorry, Andres. And I'm walking with Teyan, ah! <laughs> and ow! I guess she just walked into something too. I
6: walked into a
7: branch. She found a branch, well, too. And now we're going to go ahead and cross Woodstock because we've been on the other side where Safeway and is. And it's time to cross. And we're going to walk in the Safeway. The way this works is we're going to go up to the counter, and we're gonna, going to get a what, everybody? Personal shopper. We're going to get a personal shopper, no and we're going to tell them what we want. And they drag us around the store so we don't have to know at the store because every single Safeway is different, and they change all the time, as you guys probably know.
10: After walking nearly half an hour to get to the store, Andrew and his friends go inside. An employee, who helps the visually impaired to shop, greets them. Uh, hello. Hello.
7: Hi. Okay. So do we need
10: a basket? Yes, we do. How about just a basket, I
7: think, is going to... what
6: meant, yeah, like a hand basket? Or uh, a cart? Ch- cart. Oh,
7: let's grab a cart. Yeah. You get, oh, you
6: you a
5: be. lot of
7: shopping today. Well, to be on the safe side. So, yeah. I don't know. I might find some items I suddenly take a liking to okay. while we're on the way.
10: As they go about their shopping, Andrew turns off the tape deck. Later, he told me how disorienting it was to record with headphones while trying to listen for street sounds. I can't imagine crossing the street without my sight, and I marvel at his ability to navigate the world around him. Andrew's walk to the store inspires me to step outside to my own backyard and try moving around with my eyes closed. I cross my own patio and walk on the soft grass then try to cross to the plum tree in the back. It feels like a long walk. But eventually I... I... Oh, I found it. We're living on earth. This is D. May Roberts in Portland, Oregon. I'm
3: sticking with you. Cause I'm
0: Our profile of Andrew Meyer was made possible with a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's part of the Hearing Voices series. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, it's the mysteries, the markets, and the savory morsels of that snake-like fish, the eel.
4: They are quite tasty, like a slightly grainy pasta with a tiny crunch from the backbone and a faint aftertaste of fish and garlic. We consider the eel
0: next time on Living on Earth.
3: I'm sticking with you
10: i I'm made out of glue Anything that you might do
3: I'm gonna do too
0: Before we go, a quick trip through the soundscapes of three cities. Reportings from Vancouver, Madrid, and Lisbon are the basis for hans Ulrich Werner and Michael Rosenberg's collaboration, Dreams and Memories. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at www.loe.org. Our staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Jessica Penny, and Al Avery, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Mylisa Mooneyes. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. We had help this week from Rachel Gershik and Jesse Fenn. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening.
11: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues, the National Science Foundation supporting environmental education, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service.
10: This is NPR, National
3: Public Radio.